Welcome to the next podcast from Millinery Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie, and thank you for joining me for this podcast today. Today, we welcome Ian Bennett. We hope you enjoy hearing stories about Ian's millinery career so far and his new shop in London. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors for making this episode possible. Best Western Apollo Bay Motel and Apartments, Hatters Millinery Supplies, House of Adorn, Lifted Millinery, Be Unique Millinery, Millinery Australia, Judith M. Millinery Supply House, Hats by Leco, Hat Academy, Louise McDonald Milliner, and Hat Mags. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes, either on your podcast app or through our website. Help us continue to keep the content coming your way. Thanks to our Patreons who make each episode possible. If this podcast is something you enjoy listening to and you find some inspiration for your work, I'd like to invite you to show your support and become a patron of Millinery Info. It can be as little as the cost of a coffee each month as you listen to the new episode. Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash millinery info to sign up. I hope you enjoy this episode with Ian. Getting into millinery. So I actually got into millinery, so it's 30 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, and it, it was mostly by accident. I, 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 I did uh, a, a course at Ipswich College, uh, just yeah. a general art and design course. And there was a woman there, Mary, one of the teachers, who did a textiles course. And in the textiles module, yeah. you could do hat making. And it never, never struck me. It was a dome, there was a dome crown and a couple of brims, you know, proper basic, yeah. just basic bit. And it was, people made their own felt. Own felt? Yeah. Proper, nah. proper home handcrafted. Graham Smith had this fabulous um, term, which he called loving hands at home. <laughs> I'm sure people quite don't quite know the, the relevance of this. But um, it's that whole thing of it all felt too crafty. It, it it didn't feel polished enough. So I saw it, didn't take any notice of it. Um, but what I used to do was, in the sculpture part, I used to make things out of papier-mâché and clay, and then I'd carve them, and then make moulds from them. So And then stri- steam, stiffen, and stretch fabric, either in starch or dip it in stuff, and glue and PVA, and then stre- stretch it over a mould. And then one of the visiting lecturers came in and said, what you're actually doing is you're you're making millinery but not making a hat. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what is this complete what is, this speak? is not making sense. Like what what on earth does that mean? Because when you make stuff you it's a case of either applying or taking away. It's it's one or the other in sculpture. Um and so so she said actually I I, I went to Norfolk Institute, which was Norwich Art School of Art and and she said what you're basically doing is is you're creating hats without creating hats so i'm going to do i'm doing a wi course women's institute and said why don't you come along and i'm like why like why why would i why like and, and she's like just come along and so so i went along to this really drafty old house like the, there was only one room. The rest of it was seemed to be deserted. It's one of those things that you think Gosh. walking up the drive, you, the bus stops outside, and you get off and you walk up the drive, and you think, 
have I just walked into? Is this the end? <laughs> <laughs> Is this a ploy and I'm going to end up in bin bags? <laughs> but but you, you, I didn't know, didn't yeah. know. And I, I, I thought, okay. So, and I, I saw then other people walking into this building and I thought, oh, okay. So, so I'm not in. the only one. I'm not the only one that's going to end up in a bin bag. It's collectively. Um, so, so yeah, I did it. And there was... There's about 12 other women in there, all in their 60s, all in their 60s, if not in their 70s. Um, and I was this 21, 22-year-old then, just like, what on earth is this? Like, what on earth is this? And, like, I think women then seem to be very much older than women now. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, yeah, like when when we when when I was growing up, and and when lots of people were growing up, old people, older people, like people in their sixties, when I was in my early, late teens, seemed very old. Whereas people now, when they, when you say to people that are in their sixties and seventies, they don't seem anywhere near as old as they did when I was growing up. Um, so we we did this, and I had a, we got a, we bought old felt hats from charity shops uh, for two or three quid each and they told us to take everything off them and then steam them again and we blocked them and I was like, I had the best day of my life it was the most fantastic and it, it, I made probably the, without fail the ugliest hat you've ever seen in your life. That's all, it's all our first hats I think, yes, but yes, I've, I've, it got you hooked yeah, <laughs> it, it, it properly got me hooked and I came home and I uh, at the end of a day of blocking and I thought I'd made the ugliest felt bowler hat, grey felt bowler hat, out of the ugliest grey you could possibly imagine. But I was absolutely hooked and it was the best day ever. And, and that was it. I, I then started doing an evening class in millinery there at the college she taught it. Um, and then I specialised for the last, for those two years at, at, at Norwich School of Art in doing all of, turning all of those hats all of the the projects into hat projects oh, wow. uh, so everything i made was all then hat based um and then i i got a i wrote to all these milliners all over the country and managed to get a work placement as internship as it's called now but only a, like a two-week work placement at philip somerville in yeah. blenheim street and came down and and did a work work placement in london with them and was watching in a real workroom, how real hats were made, and and saw that, Amazing. that was that was incredible. And did you come down with the idea that I'm never going to leave? I want to stay forever. Or how did no. that? <laughs> no, 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 it was never it 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 was never that. It was it was just to see seeing how I I I, I didn't have any expectations of anything. And so I came, Somerville's were the only people that responded to me. And Mr. Somerville was absolutely brilliant. And he came down, he actually, many years later when I worked with him, I got a job there. I actually worked for Philip Somerville three times in the end. Went wow. off and did something else and then came back and then went off. Anyway, um, and he, at the end, Mr. Somerville actually called, used to call me Yap Yap. Because, as you can tell from this podcast, it, once I start, I am like a Duracell bunny and don't stop. Um, when I worked in Chilton Street at the, the last time, um, he used to lean over the stairs and, and all down the, the stair wall was mirrors. And if you were in the bottom of the stairs, you could look up and see into the shop so you could see if anyone came in when the door went. Or if Mr Somerville wanted anything, he'd, he'd tap on the stair rail or shout 
and you'd look up and you could see and he'd, he'd indicate to whoever he wanted. Um, and he used to, every so often, lean over the edge of the stairs and say, yap, yap, it's starting to get a little bit loud. <laughs> that was... And I'd be like, sorry, Mr. Somerville. And he's like, it's signal. But he was great. He was he was such a such a, a wonderful man to work for. So yes, so so then I got that and then did my final collection um, at the Royal College and they actually loaned me their mannequins from their shop to do my final collection on ah. and so drove down to London, collected them all, and and took them all back and and borrowed them for two weeks for my final show. Which was which was brilliant of them. It really, really was. I was, I was so grateful. Um, so and then and then from there, I I got I applied. The only place that was doing millinery then as a proper was the Royal College of Art. You could do evening classes, but they they're mainly for London people. And being in Suffolk, I I I can't commute down one night a week. I couldn't afford to. Um, Thank you for eating your bone, Arthur. Um, Arthur's busy chewing a bone. Um, the Royal College of Art offered one place in millinery per year. Oh, wow. As a Master of Arts. Yeah. Um, and you had to try, and I ummed and and I thought about it, and I spoke to a couple of tutors, and, and one of them actually came in and said to me, what have you got to lose? Like, if you don't get in... The worst thing that happened is you've now got a portfolio ready six months before everyone else because the interview process was done like first week after Christmas. So I hadn't done my final collection or anything like that um, and had the interview and it was it was like the X Factor. It was worse than the X Factor. <laughs> it was it, like in all those reality TV programmes now where there is a panel. Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ. There oh were seven people. Oh, my gosh. Who was... Who was the line? Uh, John Miles was the, the principal, so he was head of fashion. And then you had a head of menswear, head of women's wear. Then you had the uh, the millinery tutor at the time and the millinery technician. And then there was two student reps, one student and a student rep at the time. So to make sure that you all come across fairly. Yes. Um, so everyone gave a different viewpoint. Um and so I went to the open day first and they said, when you're looking around and you know everyone's like sat there when you go to an open day at a college and no one really wants to talk to you and it's all like... And I saw this millinery room that is probably half the size of down here in this shop. Because yeah. it started out life as a corridor from one side to the other and they shut it in. Um, but it was, it was probably only eight feet wide by about 20 feet long. It's... A tiny, it's not even a room, like, for God's sake. It was a sake. corridor. It was a corridor <laughs> with desks in it. And any time anyone got the chance, it was used as a corridor. Yeah, so, but, um, yeah, so, so we, I thought, oh, Christ, what on earth is this? How can you do I really want to be Do I really want to really be doing this for two years in this room? But you did millinery every day for two years, and I'm like, I've got to do it. Um, at those, those days, the grant system still existed, so yes. you could... Um, you could apply for a grant, and I thought, like, like the tutor said, what, what have you got to lose? What have I got to lose? All I've got to do is got get a portfolio. But on the way looking round, I, I did speak to one of the students, and I said, in in your opinion, what are they looking for? And they said, the the millinery student. She said, Joe Gordon. She said, 
people that they want to see who you are. They don't want to see you part of something else. You are not this. They want to see from the moment your portfolio is on their table, they want to see who you are. And then, and it was only three weeks until the, the like, handing portfolios. And John Mars, who then gave us all a talk in the big hall at the end, said, I am so bored of seeing big black portfolios with shiny sleeves where people have just thrown money at it. It tells me absolutely nothing about you. If you want a me, if you want to stand out and me to remember you, do something that makes me remember you. What did you do? Um, <laughs> I based my whole portfolio on first class travel on the Titanic. So, <laughs> I arrived. Tell us more about this. So, so, so everything, my portfolio was a suitcase that I bought from a charity shop, which I had painted gold. It was turquoise blue, and at the time I had masking tape stripes off. And actually, it was it's so Egyptian, it's untrue. I don't even know why I did it, but masking taped it off and then sprayed it so it was turquoise and gold striped. Hideous, like hideous. (laughs) But I, I, so I had a suitcase, a smaller suitcase, and then hat boxes, and they were all gold stripe in some form. So what, all with luggage tags on, all to make it, it was, the idea was that I wanted to show that I'd arrived at my des- destination. In my brain. That's the, that was the story. That, that yeah. was my story. And, and then, so what happens if you got through the first stage of your interview, they called you back in, um, your first stage of the, the portfolio, they then called you back in, but they, they gave you a set. Um, project to do before you arrived um, so they it was time so they knew how long you had to work on it so I did that at the same time I was doing my work experience at Philip Somerville and would do Somerville's during the day and in the evening do all my paperwork and I just produced it's like my head exploded and I just produced hundreds and hundreds of sheets and this that and the other and designed collections on different looks and themes and went into overdrive so i after when i actually got the interview they put all your work out and you've got to talk about it and john miles just sat there as all this stuff was piling up on the table <laughs> suitcase on suitcase on suitcase with then hat box and then a hat box at the side and was like he just said just sat and looked up at it from writing on his piece of paper and went jesus christ you've arrived and i, went, <laughs> I have yes <laughs> So I was stood there in a kilt with a bright yellow denim jacket and a black bowler hat. And yes, I'd arrived. And I I don't remember the interview. I don't remember the questions. All I remember is at the end, John Miles said, if you don't get into college, if you don't, if we don't give you a place, what will you do? And I said, I said, well, if you don't accept me, someone else will. But ultimately, I will be making hats for the rest of my life. So you either help me or you don't. And they said, thank you very much. And walked, walked, <laughs> took all my suitcases and, and staggered out of the door. <laughs> and then had to carry everything back so home. How, do, and do, and you, you just looked at yourself? Yeah, you just there on your absolutely, own? Absolutely, yeah. I had a, a suitcase under one arm, a strap around it, and then a suitcase under the other. And then these hat boxes. And I was like... I must have looked like like a 1950s, 1940s war evacuee who was taking everything that they belonged, staggering back on the tube. Yeah. 
shocking. And um, did did they accept yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. After yeah. that uh, presentation, yeah. I, I, I think the poor people just they sat there for a few minutes after I've left and just went. Well, we can't knock it in the spot. Yeah. Or, or, or what on earth happened? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I remember looking around because it was a glass door that was on a pivot, so it swung around. And I remember as I went out the door, Margaret, the, his then secretary, just looked at me with the biggest smile on her face. And as the door shut behind me, John Mars was just sat at the end and his eyes were like saucers. He just... He, 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 he still was in disbelief as, as to what had just happened to him. <laughs> but yes, I got... Everyone, we, we then knew that if if I got an envelope, it had to be a heavy envelope because if you got accepted, you got, if it was a light, just a little A4. Thank you A4, so much for your application. Absolutely. And I got this massive A4, the thud of it. I was sat under the door on the door because it had the... The, we got notified on my birthday. They were everyone was told on April the twentieth, and and so all the letters went out mass thick or thin, yes. and I sat just at the bottom of the stairs staring at the door for for like two and a half hours, waiting, for the, waiting for the postman to come. I hope he wasn't late that day. I just remember it being a sunny morning, which was unusual for April, and this thud as this massive envelope <gasps> hit the floor, and I just sat and looked at it, and I'm like okay so this is it and I got up and looked at it and it was like Ian Bennett with a Royal College stamp on it I'm like yeah he's oh my god I've got, I've got, I've got the thick envelope I've got the thick <laughs> and that was it yeah best birthday present ever what an amazing birthday present yeah so then you, what, you picked up and moved to London? Yes, to... absolutely. Yeah, I moved down to London and um, and then got a place in Student Digs, which was Tower Tower Hill at the time, near the Design Museum that was not trendy at all then. Yeah. Um, I moved into a flat that had mould in the bottom of the bath Ugh. where people had been stood. There was actually mould. The fridge door had been broken off because the, the icebox had frozen up. And instead of actually defrosting the fridge, they just slammed it yeah. until they broke the fridge door off. So you, they, the fridge door was placed in front of the fridge, and I moved into a room with all that I could carry to start college. I had three three suitcases to move in with, and now look, this is <laughs> this is all my millinery thirty years later. Wow. Yeah. So after you did the course, what? Did you think I'm going to have my own label? What was the no, 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 no. I, I, all the time because I'd seen Philip had only graduated a couple of years before me. Misa Harada was going. She was working at Freddie Fox at the time, and she was a great. Um, it, it was great to see how Misa worked, and and Joe Gordon went out and did her own stuff, and all that like explosion of publicity when they left. But I didn't, I didn't want to go out into the world of not knowing London and not knowing how fashion worked because I, I'm, I'm still a, 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 a young lad from Lincolnshire who was by far the youngest in the, the, the MA at the, for the whole course. Everyone else was London wise and I didn't know anything about the tube or the buses or anything and wandered around left, right and centre like, like a fish in a bowl staring <laughs> at everything. Everything was incredible. London was fabulous. I made friends with a, a fabulous girl called Silvana who worked for Gianni Versace. Um, and I got 
one of the the red leather rucksacks that had the safety pins all over it she got me a deal so i got it for 80 quid and i would walk everywhere in a red fake fur coat and a red leather versace couture bag with all these safety pins swinging along on the back <laughs> i thought i was the absolute bees knees bugs, <laughs> bits whatever you call it but but london was so exciting and 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 it didn't stop. You could put your head out the window. I eventually moved to Earl's Court. You could put your win- head out the window at 4am and the world was still alive. Which would have been such a contrast to where you... Oh my up. God, yeah. Yeah, where, where, where you're lucky if a bus came once an hour and the town closes at five. Yeah. On a good day. On a good day, <laughs> yeah. We went back a few weeks ago and like they're starting to talk about half day closing again. I'm like, oh dear. Oh, oh, gosh. Oh. <laughs> but yeah so so yes it's um it was a real contrast and i i look i walked through, i must have walked around london people must have thought what on earth because i just walked around london constantly with a massive smile on my face because everything was fabulous even the crap was fabulous <laughs> like even how dirty it was and watching mice on the tube lines and the tubes being dirty and all of it watching when the train came and all this litter would blow through the tunnel it was it was it was all exciting to me because none of it was seemed real yeah yeah and through the course were you did you have one-on-one how was that format like how did that course run um there was jane sturgis who was millinery technician who went on to become head of millinery department at london college of fashion there was maria reagan who when who's taught loads and loads of millinery people and worked at Dior originally in Paris in the fifties, um, and then Shirley Hex who taught Philip Tracy, uh, so we, in the end, the course they chose, it, it, instead of just being one person that they took on for the course, they thought what we'd do is they'd take, three of us on because they couldn't choose between the three, and then have no one for two consecutive years afterwards uh-huh. to even it out. Yeah. So Pip Hackett. Me and Scott Wilson, all three of us, did the MA together in millinery. Oh, wow. So we actually had a lot of pulling power, and we had Marie one day, Shirley another day, and then Jane two other days after that. So we had four days millinery tuition a week, which was like the most incredible thing. And with all that history as well, because Shirley had worked in millinery production but she worked in factories she'd worked in couture houses she'd worked for everyone and anyone but worked her way up when millinery was still when everyone still wore hats same as marie so that marie worked alongside a woman called michelin who used to make shapes for philip tracy years later um and they they actually worked at the top couture end of millinery shape making making for one-offs and couture customers and things like that so this mixture of everything and anything in between was, was superb. Yeah. yeah. And it was four days a week. And then the rest of the time you were just walking around London in your red outfits. Yes. Red <laughs> or kilts. Or I remember Elton John used to have those designer sales then. And it's where the Apple shop is now on Regent Street. And they, every year he used to have get all of his friends to donate stuff and sell it off for the AIDS charity. And I got a... A Jean-Paul Gaultier couture coat, a, a tartan check, burgundy and, and sky blue check, and the pockets were still sewn up. And it was 150 quid, and I'm like, I thought, 
can I afford that? I can't really have that. I, can't, I really can't afford that. And uh, anyway, three quarter length. And I tried it on and this guy said to me, like, he said, that coat is made for you. It fit like an absolute, and I'm like, 150 quid. As a, as a poor student thinking, yeah. 150 quid. How can I afford 150 quid? Even though it's a, a, a Gautier Couture coat. Yeah. <laughs> that, that didn't even come into it. The idea was, how was I going to afford it? Yeah. Did you? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what I did or did eat for the next <laughs> three way. months. But I, yeah, I, I bought it and people came in and like, and I remember once having going into a charity shop and there was a lime green jumper in the window. Like lime, not lime, as in road workman green. Yeah. High-vis green, like mm-hmm. Paul Smith jumper. And I I bought this for three quid, a Paul Smith jumper. And it probably, probably because everyone walked past the window and thought, dear God, what on earth would have possessed Paul Smith to make a jumper like that? Anyway, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Nobody could ever talk to me because everyone had to put their hand in front of their bottom half of their face because if, if they then closed their eyes, they could see a red version of me and the jumper. They got this odd afterglow. So everything in the world looked funny pink when they'd been talking to me because this green was so neon. They were just like, please take the, please it's too much. Take the jumper off. I, I, we can't talk to you with it. So yeah, so so when I left, I actually thought, I I, I don't want to go out and, and immediately start on my own. Pip and Scott did. They, they, they were very focused on what they wanted to do from the beginning. Um, but I actually thought... What I want to do is actually work for people, gain a knowledge on what they do and work out all the time while I'm being paid and and being taught by someone actually in the field. um, I'm being paid and I actually, Marie um, spoke to Graham Smith and said, I think this student would be really good for you. Um, And I went to work in Graham Smith's workroom. I finished college on the Thursday and I started with the Graham Smith on the Monday morning. Oh, wow. So I had that weekend off and I started work. And um, yeah, I started on £4.37 an hour after just graduating from an MA in 1996. Yeah. How I even afforded to live in London, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Crazy. Absolutely crazy because that wage must have only just covered my bills. At a push, like I don't know how I did it. Were you working full time, or were you working like extreme hours? No, 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 just full time. Because Graham, Graham, uh, Graham was great. Um, the the team, apart from Kay, was and and Kirsten were much older. Yeah. So I sat next to a, a, a beautiful woman called Linny, who used to have flower tools and a little electric ring, and used to make all the flower tools in her hand, and. Um, Graham would sit at the head of the table. We'd all be round a massive table. There'd be all the others like Carol and Magda would work part time. Um, I would then do all the dyeing. Kay would do all the the the, the blocking and the rolling of the edges. Um, and in those days, we worked only virtually only in parabontal straws. And Graham had these big drum boxes, and we had that many parabontals that they were all sorted according to the colour. Oh wow like immense like but we we it was normal we yeah. we didn't we didn't we would go in a box a customer would come in for our, with a hat 
Graham would do a sketch in a, in a big a bi the Bible as it was or the diary as we called it yeah. with all the breakdown of what it was who did what bit who worked on what bit a costing and then um, with a sample of the fabric and we'd then either I would have to dye it or if we had one in the drum we'd go through the drum box to see what colours there was close to it So and that's what I did for, for 18 months I worked there doing the dyeing every day I met Princess Margaret there God dear just after Diana died um, the the royals went out to sort of speak to the people yes. as such um, and I remember one day I had the, the most awful... Wasn't it a green jumper? No. it was. There is a period of awful clothes for a long time <laughs> of my whole life, which is now I just resort to jeans and T-shirt. Um, but I had this orange and brown apron, waterproof one. Like, how? who even... Like, I think it had, like, Mrs. Beaton's recipes or something down the front or, or the suffragette's guide to life or something in, like... Sure. Yeah. And so, and, and the holiest cardigan you've ever seen in your life, because outside of the back of Graham Smith's, it was a, a sort of light well that had actually been filled in with plastic corrugated sheeting. So it was freezing. There was ice on the inside of the roof then. And so I would be out there dying the, the, the feathers and stuff in galvanised steel buckets in the days before cinema, you see. Yeah. So we, I would dye all the parabundles and some of the fabrics that went with them, but it was parabundles in the win in the summer, felts in the winter. We, we didn't do cinema. There was no we didn't do cinema hats at all. Um, so I'd dye all them and then all the feathers and stuff like that. And one day I was dyeing all these feathers, ostrich primes for a couture hat for Harrods. We used to do, we used to do between twenty and thirty ostrich primes for a hat per hat. Wow! And how many? hats would you do for them we did one season i think we did 200 hats for for harrods alone like immense numbers we were working flat out carol i carol had a little board on her knee with one of those flat irons that she held on a cloth and carol could roll between three and five bin bags worth of petals a day after two days, we would have like a six foot square area <laughs> full of bin bags that was hand rolled petals by Carol. I would be dying as, as quick as I could dye it. She could press it and cut it and roll it. And she'd be shouting out, Ian, I need more lime green. Or So one of the hats that we did was Graham would block a, 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 we'd, we'd block a, a, a blocking net base for the crown. Then the, the the top of the caplin, the top of the crown of the caplin would be the tip of the hat, mm -hmm. and then the whole brim would be the brim with a, a rolled steel wire edge, um, hand rolled all the way round, and then um, we would then the crown, the sides of the crown, the blocking net would then be covered what either with rolled petals or uh, one beautiful one we did for Princess Alexandra and Princess Margaret was five grades of ostrich feather that was then peeled off the spine and then machined onto a length and then wrapped round the crown all the way round. So all this mottle, so you had this mass of feather. And so I was dyeing these, going back to the Margaret story, I was dyeing 20 ostrich feathers over two buckets, all in different shades, rocking and backwards and forwards in buckets like this. And Graham, I heard a voice behind me going, Ian. And I'm like, 
yes, Graham, I'm dying feathers. I've got my glasses <laughs> are steamed up. It's freezing on the inside. I've got this awful holy cardigan that's got more holes than cardigan and this awful apron. And Graham's like, Ian, can I have you for a minute? I'm like, Graham, I am dying feathers. Can't you see? I am dying dirt brown feathers as I'm walking them in the dark. And he said, just turn around. So I, I, I just went, oh, God, what? And I picked up all the feathers, still dripping with water, turned around to him. Well, Princess Margaret and Graham are stood there. And I've got this, like, looking the worst I could possibly, possibly look. And all the dye is, is just splattering all up my legs. And I'm like, and I'm looking at her and she's the tiniest thing. And she's got these tiny little handmade leather boots with a little heel on that were like a, a terracotta colour. Well... And the reason I remember this is because they're nearly the same colour as the floor, which is these old workroom terracotta tiles. Well, the thing, Graham's like, I wanted you to meet, this is Princess Margaret, and I said, pleasure to meet you, and bow, and, and I'm still, holding, your still feathers. holding my feathers tight. <laughs> but what I'm doing now is looking at the floor, because the dye has now formed puddles, which is now zigzagging its way like a Tetris game across the floor to Princess Margaret's feet. And I'm just like, holy shit! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God! And Graham's like, Ian, can you please explain to Princess Margaret what happens? And I'm like, Your Majesty, this is where we do the the dyeing. I dye so all the colours are matched on the wall. And And she says, my, that looks like a Jackson Pollock. Because what I used to do was, when I was drying the feathers, I used to whack the feather against the wall to see what colour it was. <laughs> but this was a mass. There must have been three or four hundred shades of colours all over this whole wall where I'd just gone whack. And didn't Graham was like, we're going to have to paint that wall one day. And I'm like, what, so I can start again? Yeah. He's like, no, so you cannot do it anymore. You're not getting this. So anyway, so I, I, I said, this is what happened. And he said, do you want to explain the wall? And I, and I was just, I said, well, to make sure the colour's right, I would whack the feather against it. And all the time, I'm watching this puddle of dye slowly, these two puddles just slowly snaking their way across the floor. And I, and Graham's like, but do you want to... And she she then interrupted me and she said, so, so basically, the magic starts with you then? And I said, actually, yeah, probably it does, because if I can't, if I don't get the colour right... The, the rest, rest of the hat can't yeah. happen. And she said, what a lovely story. That's very interesting. Thank you so much. And for being so young, starting this. And I said, and I just read, remember holding my breath and said, thank you, Your Majesty, really quickly. Because <laughs> I'm like, go, just go. Because <laughs> the water is now, it's probably so now it's about three or four inches from her feet. And just as, just as, Graham and she so Graham guided her and turned around and looked at me with the biggest eyes as if to say what on earth is your problem because like normally you can't stop me talking and then he looked at the floor and went oh dear god and walked out out the door (laughs) but yeah so so I went from him to work at um, Stephen Jones and then from Stephen Jones, I went to Philip Somerville. And then from there, I went to Freddie Fox. Um, and then I won the Hat Designer of the Year competition for the Hat Magazine. Um, and it didn't stop. I, I worked. And then I went back to Philip Somerville again. And yeah, it was. It, it just didn't stop. And I, I stayed with each person roughly about 
The shortest one was Stephen Jones, where I inherited so many problems because there hadn't been a production designer for so long that I was running to catch up and was doing hour after hour trying to stop mess happening and and getting on top of it and stuff. And then went from there back to Somerville's and then went on to work with Freddie Fox, which was a, a great, great person. And then met Stella, who works on the Queen's Hats now. Um... Uh, I met her for the first time at Freddie Fox's and Freddie was incredible a lot of the time for all the wrong reasons we had arguments <laughs> I've never argued with someone outside of my family as much as I had argued with Freddie Fox <laughs> he was he Creative was differences or um... uh, <laughs> mm. he he, we, we came from two different sides of the same story. We both understood the value of couture and we both understood how couture had to happen. But I came from a perspective where I was taught by Marie and Graham Smith and Philip Somerville that couture was something that had to be understood and, and was a valuable thing. Um, you didn't cut corners, you did stuff properly. And I still, to this day, I do stuff properly. If I'm not happy with it, it ain't happening. Um, and thanks, because it's my own place, I can I can now do that. Um, but but yes, me, Freddie was Ross and all the people and Stella and everyone that worked there. We would get a worksheet with what hats we had to make that day and a timing, and all the fabric and everything was cut for them, and how long we had to make them. And because Freddie made as well, whereas Philip Somerville didn't, Philip Somerville was more of a, a salesman, a very good salesman, rather than a milliner. He wasn't trained in millinery as such. Whereas Freddie sat at the end of the table with us and would sit and make hats. So, so I had far more respect in that way for him because he was a, a maker like Graham Smith was. So he knew every trick. He knew every way to work fabric. He was... He would say, like, no, you need, if you turn it this way, that will do this, and if you hold that, that. And between him and Stella, the the, the knowledge that they had from millinery was phenomenal. So, so yeah, I, but we argued. I'm like, you cannot charge £800 for a couture hat that you want made in two hours. And he's like, why not? And I'm like, because it doesn't work. And he's like, it will show you have to take my... And he's like, it's costed at two hours. Stella made it in two hours. You'll make it in two hours. And I'm like, no, not a chance. And we, I remember having a stand-up argument with him. And I remember Stella just sitting at the back, just staring at us both. And he's like, when will you get your head around this idea that couture can be made, but at a, a, a timed, like a timetabled time? And I'm like, that's not how Couture worked. And he's like, yes, it is. This is a business. I'm running a business. And he's like, and then I remember saying, it's not a Couture house then, is it? And he was like, <laughs> I thought, now I've overstepped the mark. That might have been the that line. That might have been the that line that I just slowly won past. <laughs> Raced past. <laughs> but yeah, we did, we did have many arguments. But I did. He did know that I always respected like his work ethic and the fact that he did make himself and he did go to the palace and he did know with alterations and stuff that he did it. Him and Stella worked on all the Queen's stuff. 
and he he knew how to make her inside out because he did it and when i arrived there in the morning stella would start i think stella started at eight i started at eight thirty freddie would be in there blocking with her or ironing something or getting the customers he, he, so he knew he knew the game inside out in the same way that graham smith did so so you can't not have respect for those people yeah and then the hat designer over the year what did you for the hat magazine what did you make for that and what came out of it for you oh god um it was i the i remember doing the competition and i won all but one category the one i didn't win was the cut and sew one i think i came third in that but because i won in the ready to wear and the couture one and and both all the pieces and the design as well I think that I then won it because I got that, but I the, the, I became the overall winner because I'd won yeah. the other two pieces as well. Um, and Philip Tracy said to me at the the time when he awarded the gave me the award, he said that um, he wanted me to go in and see him because he'd never seen um, couture stitching like it to such a level. He said he said your workmanship is beautiful. So to get that from Philip Tracy was a was like that in a way that was worth way more than the prize yes. was to, to, to just be like yeah and i don't even remember what blocks i walked with the with yeah. the winnings and everything like that i couldn't tell you but that wasn't but the bit that that the, the my mum has the trophy in the cabinet the glass obelisk yes. at home and um and and yeah getting and i went for an interview with philip tracy then but didn't actually want to work with philip because her, my work and his work it probably sounds quite big headed of me at the time but we had a similar look in how we worked and I didn't want to when I left I didn't want to be a person that was because every time I saw someone left to start on their own from working at Phillips they were always like Philip Tracy taught blah 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 yeah. or at, you can see where their work ethic has come from after working for Philip Tracy or now gone on their own after working for Philip blah 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 using yeah. that as a tagline in the media and I didn't ever want to be that so I actually never worked with Philip ever I, I the, the interview went sort of disastrously wrong <laughs> that's a whole other story but um but I, I see Philip every now and again. He walks up the road with his dog. And um, we, we had a conversation not long ago on Battersea Bridge one morning as as we, I was coming in with my dogs and he was yeah. going the other way walking his. Um, lovely, lovely person. And his work is just purely phenomenal. Yes. Like, absolutely is. Um, and sometimes I think how different may have life been if I'd have worked for him. And you can't answer that can you it's, no. it, it it didn't work at the time and and that was fine so so yeah so never actually got the job with him and then carried on working i went to freddie fox after winning that yeah. award after i was working in luton so i'd done design and worked for the factory and worked for alberts in luton and where we did ground staff for luton airport and did the hats for british airways and did hats for BHS and things like that. So, so I had done couture with Marie and and Shirley Hex, and then gone on and done Graham Smith and Philip Somerville and Freddie Fox and Siggy Hats, and then done some work at James Locke, um, and then so I I'd done all of this, and then I thought actually. If I'm going to do it, I need to at some point start working on my own because I'm running out of people left to work. 
Uh, and then, actually, a few years after that, I, I actually, I'd worked for theatre stuff. I'd done some stuff for the ENO by this point, the English National Opera, and done freelance for them and some other freelance jobs. Uh, and then I got, um, I managed to get a Coin Street community. I got a, a shop in the Oxo Tower and then opened that up. Um and that was great, really loved it, but then recession kicked in and I saw it was coming, fortunately saw it was coming before it happened mm-hmm. and I got out before before it all happened and um, I, I told Stella then that I'd still been friends with all those days from, from working at Freddie Fox yes. that um, I was going to go on my travels, I was going to go get my motorbike and go on my travels around the world and... Um, didn't want to work with the shop anymore and Stella said well I'm going to work for Her Majesty uh, with Angela Kelly and they came in and they actually bought the whole shop wow and the whole shop they the Queen's drivers and the cars and the people carriers or whatever you want to call them came in 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 sort of almost relay format and took everything other than the blocks um, and took the lot the the boxes that they went in i had a a a drying cabinet a victor drying cabinet like the one over there that i painted gloss black which i called darth vader (laughs) for my love of star wars and everything went everything went and was actually recreated above the queen's personal quarters in the palace my shop even even the styrofoam heads that i'd carved and put the hats on on in in my old shop in the oxo tower they were all taken and it was all recreated in the palace wow so so when i jumped forward a couple of years my travels didn't work but around the world by the way didn't no did you even get on the bike Got on the bike, but the bike wasn't... Uh, a Ducati Monster is not made for anywhere that doesn't have roads and good weather conditions, which <laughs> which, which counts for far less of the world than I'd actually given credit to. <laughs> so, in my mind, I was Ewan McGregor, but in reality, that, that really no, wasn't the case. No. So, so, came back, tail between my legs, a couple of years later, didn't work. Parents, like, what on earth have you done? And and started again. So, I I I then eventually got a job back at moved moved back into London, working at ENO again, and doing some freelance work. I did some work at, at Philip Somerville, um, and then it it came one day. Stella said she needed. Uh, would I be interested in going in and doing some stuff for her, teaching her how to die at the palace, just as a one off? So because the queen has all these different fabrics and stuff like that so i went in as a one-off to do um just feather dyeing show feather how to stella had to prep them wash them dry them cut them all that and so on which was lovely for a couple of days and then um angela then was getting a team together for the diamond jubilee um and for the opening of the Olympics and stuff like that, none of which I knew at the time. But um, then they they called me back in and asked me if I'd be interested in working freelance at the Palace with part of the team, which I did. I then worked there for, for about eight or nine months. I think I started at the... I think I started... The, yeah, seven, actually about seven and a half months. I started there September, October, I think, and worked all the way up until the end of the April the following year. Wow. 
which in is effectively your studio. Was in, still in, there? Which was odd, <laughs> yes. Still actually working with Darth Vader sat there. <laughs> but my view out the window was completely different. My view out the side window of Buckingham Palace was looking onto the, the Queen's Gardens. And every so often you'd hear the dogs barking and look out the just peer out the top of the window and there would be the queen in her headscarf with the dogs in the garden or a butler walking the dogs or yeah. somewhere you'd hear all the dogs yeah the corgis <laughs> yapping away and go down there and uh, yeah most amazing time of my life uh, surrounded by some of the most wonderful people that are are to exist and and angela had such a clear vision of what she wanted from the queen and what also not knowing how what the queen wanted from angela but how that all worked and mm. everything and we had all rooms along the corridor above the queen's quarters um and yeah we all worked the dresses were being made and fitted at one end of the room and and all the team were down there and then angela would oversee stuff and go out and get fabrics and knew what looks were coming up yeah. and then we we would prototype hats and designs and stuff like that me and stella would work in there and i worked a few days a week and Stella worked all the time and and I would do like little feather branches for this to go with a hat for that or I would do a prototype piece for that and then Angela would say she wanted it smaller bigger whatever and I worked from there all the way till this sort of the end of April how amazing what an incredible experience absolutely absolutely yeah so so yeah so I worked on pieces of hats some actual hat bases and then dyeing the feathers for things like the, to get the colour right for the peach for the, the headband that she wore for the opening of the Olympics and Lucy did these beautiful little ceramic I don't know what flower they were but they were like five or six petaled flowers all in ceramic handmade with um, gilt 24 karat gold edges on them and what crystal centres which you really can't see Stella made the headband I did the feathers she put it all together and and it looked phenomenal because Angela's vision of what it she wanted it to be was was brilliant amazing so, so yeah. what do you, what do you do to follow that what what how do you uh <laughs> but I I, 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 don't, I, I can't, do you know to be honest a couple of years after that is a bit of a blur. Yeah. I worked for Misa Harada for a while, but I can't quite remember whether I worked for Misa before or after or during yeah. or part-time. And I, But I worked all the time I've worked at K&C teaching. So um, in, I got into the teaching thanks actually to Dylan and Dawn from Philip Somerville. They asked me if they, I would cover their beginner's course as an evening at LCF which was on Oxford Street at that time, which with a phenomenal block department. <laughs> phenomenal. The unfortunate thing was that the blocks were a corridor a mile away from where the room was, so we all had to carry them up and down, which was not great for health and safety, which I'm sure wouldn't be done anymore, but perfect for students to nick blocks, wasn't it? Uh. Because they could go, I can't be teaching at the same time as watching what's going on down there. So, yeah, so I got into teaching thanks to them and they let me do the beginners course for a few years. And then I got, um, I applied for a, a teaching at K&C, as it was then, Kensington and Chelsea College with Kirsten, who worked with me years earlier at Graham Smith, yeah. um, and got the job there. So I, I worked on the HNC, Higher National Certificate, and the Beginners Millinery Level 1, teaching there one day a week. 
and that carried me through in between Mesa, the palace and everything like that all the way through. So that's why that bit in the middle after the palace is a little bit of a blur. Because yeah. I can't... And then ENO slotted in again <laughs> to that somewhere and freelance work and, and doing odd things like Dairy Lee triangles for, for production, for, for, for people to go around like supermarkets with. I had to make giant Dairy Lee triangles. Sure. And, and I remember once doing a, a hat for a, a, an ad agency that was a, a five times original size um, scale hat of a Disarono label from the Amaretto lid. It's got yes. a very distinctive big black chunky lid. Mm-hmm. I had to make it 60 centimetres square. I, I scaled it up and I ha- had to do all the gold lettering and yeah. everything on the top as a hat. It was the size of a sofa cushion. Like, <laughs> like, and I only had a weekend to make it. And, like, what, do, do these things, and you do bizarre things. You do bizarre, when you think, I did a, a Renault advert for a, a car called a Velsatis that, that didn't exist in this country, but the advert was made for Europe. And the idea was that, this man and his beautiful wife were all decked out to go to the races in Deauville, as it was. Um, and we ended up using Ascot in, or Newmarket, one of the two, which we had to be at, on location at four o'clock in the bloody morning. Anyway, I had to do all these hats that wouldn't fit in the car for different reasons. Either their brim was too big um, or the feathers were too long. So every time they got in one of these different cars... Their brim got squashed in the door, or their he- their feathers stuck out the sunroof. So we had to do all these different things. So I had to make these really oversized hats for all these fabulous ladies in all these colours. So then they shut the car door, and one of them got their hat trapped in the the dark car door. Another one, they started the car, and the feathers are sticking out the sunroof, and all these things. But then the last couple, super super chic. She's got a massive black. She's all in black. Got massive black brim. He's in a navy or black suit. And she gets in the car, slides into the car with this big brim on, shuts the door, puts on her seatbelt and drives off. Because the car is that roomy on the inside. Uh, Absolutely. So, so yeah. And so we have the honour of sitting here today in your London shop. You've just moved in. Yeah. Well, just. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ish. Yes. What was the, how long have you been here and what was it like setting up shop again? Um... I think because I'd done it in the Oxo Tower, I wasn't. It wasn't. None of it was a surprise, but I think because I'd done it in the Oxo Tower, then I, I had this idea of what I wanted it to look like and what I wanted it to be. But it's. It was always um, that idea that I wanted it to be like this thing. I had a vision, like um, so. I I wanted a full size Union Jack on one wall, but all in shades of grey. And I, so I spent four days masking up the wall so I could get an exact... So, so no one could come along and go, you do know that that's upside down. Those awful comic to, comedy floors. Or like when I did films years ago, I did a lovely film called Bellamy with Robert Pattinson and Uma Thurman years ago. And I'm like, please don't tell me at any point this film is going to be flipped round so they're wearing stuff backwards and fought to the dear death to make sure that stuff went on the right way round and it was all right and so it, I, I obsessed with details so, so I wanted all the shop to be grey 
and it had these beautiful spotlights when I come to look round. I put all my business plan together. I was going to teach downstairs and do the shop upstairs. And it used I, I knew the shop from many, many years ago when I worked at number 35, which was Milliner Warehouse. And I worked one day a week in the summer doing, basically, taking all trims out of packets on the wall and then putting them onto hat hats for people for Royal Ascot. So I knew the area. I knew some of the, the, the place. I knew the shops because I'd already worked in Milliner Warehouse. So when I heard that they were going up for grabs, I applied for one. So I had this vision of when I could do it. And unfortunately, in my brain, the council didn't ever work as fast as I wanted them to work. And things took 14 times longer than you ever give credit for. So I applied for them on the open day in October and actually finally got the keys the first or the second week of April, the six months it took for them to agree to uh, do the forms and, and all that. All the time I'm squirrelling money away to try and save for the legal fees and all that. And, and then all of this that's here now was in my spare room. Like, how? How? How on earth did this all fit in my spare room? At, uh, so whenever we moved, we had to move to a, a house with at least two bedrooms because... One of the bedrooms had to be my millinery studio. <laughs> and I got all of this in to a, a one, like, 12... This is, this is, for those who can't see, this is more than a bedroom's worth of Yeah, a 12-foot square bedroom's worth. It's a lot. <laughs> like, there's what? How many blocks would you say? 60? Yeah, at least. And then there's 10 or 12 heads and then the, all my brims are over on there and then all my cinema rolls up. I've got about 15 or 20 flower irons. As with millinery, you've got boxes and drawers. I've got six drawers full of feathers. <laughs> like, <laughs> how and that's a conservative that counter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All of the And that's without even the shop upstairs. How on earth did I do this? So, yeah, after, after 30 years ago coming to... Coming to London with three suitcases and one TV box in the days before TVs were flat. Um, how on earth in 30 years have I accumulated all these? <laughs> and two dogs. And, and two very uh, snoozy studio Thankfully puppies. they're snoring, so hopefully you're not hearing too much of their snoring. <laughs> but yeah, so I moved from there, I moved into there and got it open and, and like was so happy and I did the same styrofoam heads that were on the wall in both Mesa's um, and at the palace uh, same sort of thing with the lit back because they worked so well so all the shop was neutral grey with gold accents on it and then I thought why well, work downstairs and then every time someone came in people have to I'd have to clamber upstairs so I did the back half of the shop so I can make everything at the back yeah. so the shop people could see me working and see what I did and would come in and say hello and, and it was it was lovely um, then COVID happened for all of us, yes. as it did, and and it we all had to be closed. I I got some um, grants from the council, um, as we all did along here, to be closed and stop us from going under, unbeknown to some of us as small businesses, um, not knowing that nearly fifty percent of it would have to be paid back in tax, which screwed then us all over, all over again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then so so that end I had a big fallout with my neighbour who could stay open during the time and monopolise the whole bottom of the street because he could stay open and there were people outside the shop and stuff 
Um, and in the end, I got the council to agree to this shop that was empty and let me move from next door to him yeah. into here because he started putting his rubbish outside my shop and, yeah, and not good. It, it, it ended in a really bad situation where he threatened me in the street and that wasn't great. So, so I eventually got the council to agree to let me have this, which was an old dry cleaners. And they said, that, unfortunately, we'll let you have it, but you have to pay for everything. You have to pay for your move, your shift, your redecoration and everything, which I've done all on an absolute shoestring. The entire shop, from the ceiling lights and everything to the plinths, I've made myself or bought off eBay. The floor is off of eBay. The, 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 the glass tables and everything upstairs, they're either off eBay or when a shop was closing down or you name it. My mum has, has helped with her Debenhams loyalty card and <laughs> my on. brother wired in the ceiling lights and, and I've repainted mannequins until the point where the poor mannequins think their skins are going to fall off. You name it, we've tried it. I've been here at three o'clock in the morning putting a new floor down after never making a floor in my life. All those things to make it work and, and now I do teaching classes down here. And I've got this lovely grill here. See, I can see when people come in. Like the thing is, when you arrived at the door, you you're looking. I was like, I was like he's closed. He's not here. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, it, it, it's great because I can sit and work at this table and look through that grill and see see people outside. I can see what the weather's doing. I can see people walking about, um, and it's great for me to work in terms of daylight under here as well. So so I, I mostly sit down here, dogs snoring away, radio <laughs> blasting out, me singing away to my heart's content. And, and just happily making hats. Yeah. Which I absolutely love. Um, but I remember Maria Reagan years ago telling me, she said, you won't be physically rich from making hats, but you will, um, in terms of your body and your spirit, you will love what you do until the day you die. And and I have never, ever got up with dread. I've never, I, I've never had that commuter feeling, you know, the Sunday afternoon thinking that tomorrow I'm back at work. I have never got up thinking, oh God, I don't want to go to work today. Oh, I don't want to do that. I love, I've loved every day of this 30 years. There are, there are times when you don't love it quite as much, but then you, you look back and, and it's only when you do things like this that you think like, God, I did the film for that. And then I did the staging for that. And then I worked on the feathers for that. And I did, and the incredible customers that you meet along the way and the customers that I now meet here and I make hats for here and and all of their stories and their life and how me making for the something for them is making their world and and the the whole witch tapestry of it all makes it incredible it's amazing and I still I absolutely do love it and I found this week with the passing of the queen probably in in all of my years probably the most difficult because it's you see people with flowers and that they're going at victoria they're going off to the palace and stuff and i went to the palace last week to lay some flowers and things and it's it's so difficult after meeting her yourself as so many so many people did and she touched so many like people's lives which was lovely um and you think I, I just can't face the idea of making something or mm -hmm. doing something or being anything. And I actually thought, like when I start a collection, what do I normally do? Which are where those ram's horns come into this. <laughs> um, 
I thought, what what hat have I loved over the years? What hat have I loved making? And what hat do I love making? And so I pulled everything out of the shop window and put a picture of, of the Queen in the window with some flowers and a candle when I'm here or an LED candle when I'm not. Um, and just had, just removed everything from the window because it's not about me, it's about, it's about me being grateful for having a monarch and a royal family that wear hats in the way they do and support our millinery industry in the way they do. And, and the Queen was such a, a beautiful person that I just wanted to give my thanks. My nan and my granddad were real royalists and we grow up watching them on the TV of, of appearances and what they would do of openings of some god-awful supermarket or something <laughs> that the poor people had to do. But yeah, so, so it's my way of giving back. And then I thought, what could I make that's that I really loved and so I made that black hat as a one of, that's one of the hats that I've loved making this year and I thought what other hat do I have that reminds me of, of royalty and royal families and royal life and things and I thought I'm, I'm just going to make myself not myself but I'm going to make for the window I thought have two nice clean mannequins with the big black hat on uh, and a nice 50s style pillbox with a big, I've, I've been lucky enough to get hold of a, a, a massive, it's 10 foot high by 6 foot across, Union Jack from the Olympics. Because <laughs> I can't do half measures, as my, no, par no. my parents say. I don't know why you can't just have a normal flag like everyone else. No. No, why not? I want, I want a London stained, ripped Union Jack from the opening of the Olympics, Lost. of which 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 I've got, but is now lost somewhere in the post. Um, <laughs> so so I, my plan is to, as I design everything in my head, is to have a Union Jack in the window with a vase of flowers and these two mannequins. Yeah. For for the passing of the Queen. Yes. How amazing! Now I'm going to ask what sounds like an odd question after that information but you mentioned you design in your head but you also sketch so much what's how, how's your process for uh, oh god anything and anything like uh, the, 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 for, for these for, for you you can sit and see them but for yes. the guys that can't i have a pair of ram ram's horns sat on the side over there and i thought the other day what can i start my new collection with i start often with the most odd thing something that just randomly sits in my head be it a rocket or a unicorn or I don't know if any of you saw a couple of years ago Amanda wore a hat at the uh, at the fashions on the field which was uh, covered in Swarovski crystal which we I I based around the Tin Man from the Wizard of Oz um, and I thought what in the world what film affected me more than any other film in the world and it's the Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white when the house hits the ground into colour and for that to happen in 1930 it still gives me goosebumps in 1937 to go for, for those guys to have the imagination to do that from that must have been phenomenal yeah. and and to break the mould in, in terms of film like that and I thought what film inspired me more than anything and it's The Wizard of Oz so I thought how could I do something that reflects The Wizard of Oz in one simple thing and I thought well I can make a hat like the Tin Man's which is where that hat came from so each time I do every so often not when I get stuck but when when I sort of can't see a clear path 
I make a really random one-off thing, like for the Millinery Award with the fireworks. That it, it, I didn't know that the the award that I actually won in two thousand and sixteen. I didn't know that it was going to be drawn on bonfire night here, which is November the 5th, but that's when it was. And I made a hat based on firework displays out of feathers that was I actually won on our bonfire night. And then a couple of years later to do native Australian flowers all made out of feathers for my botanical hat and with the little William Tell West house that's in the Melbourne Botanical Gardens. And it's every so often I I throw myself a curveball, so that's, and that's what, what gets you going. So that's what Sarah a pair of ram's horns at the minute is. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to make a pair of ram's horns as a hat that's going to sit in the window that people are going to go, what on earth is that? And but they're going to come up and have a look. <laughs> yeah, but in the way that the Tin Man that's in the window now, or as Amanda calls the unicorn, or as everyone seems to have their own name for, um, it. It sits in the window on a turntable and people love it and photograph it and talk about it. And I hear many people from down here go, oh, my God, I'd never wear that. Or isn't that fantastic? I hate, For every one person that doesn't like it, I hear 50 people that go, oh, my God, that's fantastic. I don't know when I'd ever wear it, but I think it's fantastic. So, so yeah, so, so that's usually what starts a collection going. I make a mental piece that no one's ever, ever going to wear, but I just need to make it to get it out of my system. Yeah. So is that, is that what is next? What's... Yes, yes. My, my blocking um, spartry on ram's horns to make my first mental piece. Uh, because I've, um, for us at the minute, like I was talking to you earlier about, the collection, winter collections are, are very much not happening in the way that they used to. Felt hats may in small like little cocktail pieces and little head pieces and stuff are being worn but nowhere near to the extent that they used to be. So in a way I'm actually sort of woolly jumpers that my mum knits for me every year that I put in the shop are already. Yeah. My mum knits them regardless of colour as much as I try and ask her <laughs> if she can please knit me so many black ones so I can put coloured pom-poms on them or fur pom-poms on them or something like that and cream ones, I get, she's as much of a curveball thrower as I am <laughs> and I will get electric green ones, shocking pink ones, bright orange ones. And you've just got to adorn these beanies. Yeah, and, and, and I put them <laughs> in the shop and someone will come in and go, that is the most fantastic orange I have ever seen in my life. Whereas the colour of the year is something like sage green. And so it's, so my mum knits them every year because it helps her with her, uh, her arthritis. And in, in her way, she knows she's helping me out. So in the summer, she sits and knits in the evening watching TV. And I, I have loads and loads of little beanies to sell in the shop, which sort of keep me through the winter while I'm making mad pieces for spring, summer for next year. How amazing. So yeah, so, so yeah, so then I I then just start with a piece like that, or I, I my collection usually comes from a thing like it's a film or a place or an architect or like the other year it's Victorian freak shows and and Victorian circuses, so it came from there. I did a juggler, uh, a knife thrower, a hula girl, a ringmaster. Uh, a rotor and all things like that so it sometimes they come from a thing yeah. and other times they come from 
an event or a particular thing that sort of shaped me when I was young, if that makes sense. Yes. I'm feeling a very big urge towards vacuum forming and Tron was an incredible film in my growing up youth and it, the, the copy was nowhere near as good as I hoped it would be. But I really love shiny and reflective surfaces and I, I keep thinking, should those horns be silver with silver crystals at the end? But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We will wait in anticipation <laughs> to see what happens. You never know. There, there have been pieces that have never made it. So, but you've got to just you, you've got to I, start. I, I, to I, one night, like about a, a week ago, I was sat just. It actually, it was the night that the Queen died. I sat and just as as we all do now with, with information overload with with a world event that happens you become, I don't know whether it's intentional or not, but you become hungry for information, any information about the thing. And I was just sat listening, and for some reason, the, the Rams horns was the first hat I drew, and that night, in, over, in within three hours, I just started sketching, and I had drawn 12 hats in, in, in one night. And so I need to always start somewhere, and usually the place I start is not the place I end up, but it's it's almost like I have to have overload in one hat to then dissect what I like about that hat to take out and, and spread into a collection. Yeah. Amazing. So, yes, it will be interesting to see if it makes it. We'll see. Wait and, <laughs> wait and see. Hang on to some suspense. So next spring, if there is a hat in the window that is a pair of ram's horns, you know why. We all know what happened. Yeah. It worked. It worked. And if not, we'll see remnants of the rams. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll see spirals and swirls and things like that and, and sparkly bits and things coming through here, there and somewhere, somehow. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been so lovely to chat hats with you. We could talk all day. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, We, we could. I could talk all day. You are a lovely company, by the oh, way. Thank you. But, yes, it is. 30 years is a lot. Even squeeze into a couple of hours is a lot. It's such, and by no means done yet. No, not not by any stretch. I mean, if if Marie and Shirley are anything to keep going to go by, and they're both ninety four, like, and these and Marie is still making hats. So so why not? I'll, I'll I'll keep I'll keep making hats until nobody wants any of my hats anymore. Is the best way to go, is it not? And 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 like like you, I, I, you love what you do. We and like as long as we can keep paying our bills and love what we do, then why not? Amen. I think that's the thing, and I, I the, the the teaching, one it, it it sort of keeps me mentally young, but two, you never know what what people are going to be around the corner and what they're going to request from you and and what students of their ideas for their collections are going to be and how it's going to stretch you in another way, which is. Why I love teaching and, and, and why I love sharing stuff with people because like lots of people when I first started in millinery didn't ever want to share anything with people. Uh, like only if you work for someone would they show, you that te show that technique which was great but all these old lovely old women that I worked with over the years when they died lots of stuff died with them. And I thought well if we want to keep our industry going and if we want new people to come into this and enjoy it and appreciate it if I don't pass my skills on that I've learned from those days to other people, then those skills will die out if we don't, if all of us collectively 
don't teach it. And also, new people coming up into this industry, if they can get excited about it, as I was 30 years ago, that gives us all an industry to look forward to. So that's pretty much why I did keep doing it all. of Millinery Info with Ian. Thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors, Hat Academy, Judith A. Millinery Supply House, Best Western Apollo Bay Motel and Apartments, Louise McDonald Milliner, House of Adorn, Hatters Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, Be Unique Millinery, Hats by Lico, Hat Mags and Millinery Australia. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes, either on your podcast app or through the Millinery Info website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I would like to invite you to sign up and show your support by becoming a Patreon of Millinery Info. Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Millinery Info. It will show each tier in your local currency. You can pick from a small thank you to Millinery Info, Millinery Info, you inspire me, all the way up to becoming a Millinery Info podcast sponsor. Thank you so much to our current supporters for making each episode possible. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie, and thank you for joining me for this episode of Millinery Info. I look forward to talking hats with you again soon.